0: Going to have an interesting discussion here, and already getting some texts uh, for people saying, "Yeah, they've seen this before." Um, we're going it, to—it's all this discussion, which uh, has become you know sort of news in this country, has been going on for many many years. But uh, the discussion this week centers around um, a woman named Carrie Bourassa, a University of Saskatchewan professor and scientific director of the Indigenous Health Arm of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, is now on leave from both of those institutions um, after uh, CBC did an investigation into her claims of being Indigenous and uh, found there's absolutely no evidence to back that up at all. Now the U of S has launched their own investigation to try and get to the bottom of this. Um, She headed up an Indigenous research lab at the U of S. Uh, She publicly claimed to be Indigenous, but... There's no evidence. She's been asked to produce evidence, hasn't. She says she's hired a genealogist to prove it two years ago. Um, So the investigation continues, but at this point, she's been placed on leave from her positions. Now, the issue here is not necessarily just this one case, but the fact that there are many cases like this, and there's a problem, um, especially in academia, but in other circles, around this whole topic so to get some information on what's going on here we're going to chat now with dr kim Talbert, an associate professor in the faculty of native studies at the university of alberta and the canada research chair in indigenous peoples technoscience and environment doctor thank you so much for your time I appreciate you joining us this morning oh sure you're welcome it's a Thanks really you. interesting uh... story and one that um... sort of brings this issue to light for me anyway but for people dealing with this and being around this for some time this is really no surprise is it
1: No it's unfortunately a pretty common phenomenon across academia and I think also in uh, arts uh, organizations and the arts world as well
0: How does that happen I mean how, how why is it so common I don't want to say common but why does this why are there so many cases and why is this something that happens in those circles
1: well, I think it's there's a couple of reasons. There's, first of all, a very long history here. Um, but p- practically, I think it uh, happens more in academia because we don't have any safeguards in academia mm-hmm. for making sure that people that we are hiring as Indigenous, actually have lived Indigenous experience and community affiliation. So this idea of ancestry alone being enough yeah. really prevails in the academy. So that's that's the first problem. The second problem is there's there's a very long history of, of playing Indian, as one h- Native historian calls it in his book. Uh, you know, we've got mascotting in, in sports. We've got uh, Boy Scouts and Campfire Girls since the early uh, 20th century dressing up and playing Indian. We've got your sexy Indian maiden, Halloween costumes, mm-hmm. right? There's many ways of playing Indian. Some of them involve temporarily dressing up. But around the mid to late 20th century, you see people start to take on these permanent Indigenous identities in what we now call race-shifting, or, or uh, people on the Internet might call it pretendianism.
0: A couple of things, are, and I want to dig into it a little deeper. I think you make a really good point. Like, if you can prove ancestry, uh, you know, Indigenous ancestry, great, fine, okay. But you know what, who cares in some cases where if mm-hmm. you're so far removed from that community and from those issues and those studies and, and those relationships, really do you represent the Indigenous voice on campus anyhow? Shouldn't that be the defining quality, your links to the community?
1: Right, because the problem is people who get hired into positions or are funded as Indigenous filmmakers or artists or, you know, I'm on the news talking to you today, right? right. So we're often called to be commentators on Indigenous issues, and we, when you don't have lived experience in those right. communities, what happens is these people tend to portray us in really stereotypical ways, and then that informs policy. So we're always only the victims of violence, or we're these noble savages, right? And the truth is, Indigenous daily life is a lot more text and complicated and interesting than that, or or maybe it's even more boring than that, right? But the point is, if they don't have lived experience combined with their intellectual knowledge and their degrees, they're not really going to be good spokespeople on our issues, and they should not be informing policy and decisions that affect our lives. Um, What is
0: sort of, you know, is there a standard that has to be met here? I mean, I know there are to get, you know, treaty status and things like that, you have to have some sort of evidence, but in these, what, is it just, you just say it and that's it, that's, it's accepted?
1: Oh, totally. In the academy, it pretty much is like that. Wow. So w- one of the things we want to do is we need uh, better systems within universities to figure this out. Now, it's sensitive, right? Like, not everybody that has real lived Indigenous experience has federal Indian status. My mom has three of her six grandchildren. I'm from the U.S. who do not have tribal enrollment, as we call it down there. But they're still part of our family. They're still part of our community. So we all have relatives who don't have status or who don't have band membership. That's is true. We're not talking about excluding people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have to have safeguards to figure this out. So one of the ways is to hire, I think, into senior positions in the university, actual Indigenous people with these experiences. They will have the networks, both locally and nationally, to establish real relationships with Indigenous community. Uh, they'll be able, in the hiring process, to ask somebody about their relatives and relations and where they grew up. And I realize this isn't something that necessarily all academics do, mm-hmm. but Indigenous programming is different. Right. Uh, and so we really need those people with those networks uh, to, to do that work and to vet others who are going to be hired to do that work.
0: Um, now I'm getting texts from people saying it's not just academia. This happens in mm-hmm. other circles too: business consultants, all kinds of things claim to have indigenous ancestry and be involved and in, And they're not. Uh, do you see right. it happening outside of academia as well?
1: Yeah, it's just that I'm an academic, and right. so I've been, I've been asked to be involved in conversations involving academia and arts organizations. But, yeah, I'm aware it's in many other uh, sectors, too. Um, why? I, I think I know the answer, but why, why do people do this? I
0: guess there are advantages to it, right?
1: There are both uh, psychic advantages, although I'm not a psychologist, so I can't <laughs> go too far down that road, and also material advantages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw the salary that Carrie Barossa was making. Uh, incredible, yeah. you know, at the University of Saskatchewan, right? There are real material benefits. And when people get these jobs and positions or, or arts grants or funding, th- that, those are resources that are not actually going back to Indigenous community quite often. You know, uh, Indigenous scholars and people, you know, professionals, we're often giving a lot of money away to family members, to community causes. We're supporting activism. There's a lot that we support in our communities with our salaries. It's not just our individual career advancement. And that's the first difference for people that are community connected. But there's also this advantage of, and this is what this historian uh, Phil Deloria goes into in his book Playing Indian, this 400-year history. I mean, the history in, in in this continent is that settlers needed to destroy Native people or eliminate them or disempower them in order to take control of the land. But they also needed Indigenous people to teach them how to or show them how to feel close to this place so they could feel a sense of belonging and moral authority so they The conundrum is Indigenous people both need to be eliminated and replaced on the land, but they also kind of need us here in small numbers in order to to feel that they belong. And playing Indian is a great way to feel that you belong, you know, to get over your, your sense of complicity and historical guilt around colonialism. That's why I say, like... Seriously, somebody needs to look at the psychology of this too, as well. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I, you're yeah.
0: 100 percent right. Uh, there, there's certainly, definitely, something. Pla- it's not just the material gain. There's other aspects to it as well. Yeah. So, as somebody involved in academia and somebody who you know, as I say, as as I say, has been aware of this for some some time, how, what's being done? Um, you know, are, are these institutions uh, taking a look at this? Will this case uh, give it another kick and maybe get it back to okay? We need to have a better system in place. Is that work being ta- undertaken?
1: Uh, I hope so. I have personally never seen uh, somebody be removed from their job duties like uh, Carrie Barasa was. Uh, that's not happened. That's unprecedented. So yes, we are having, this is a moment to have this conversation, and it's very uncomfortable. You saw at Queen's University, they had a, a race-shifting case that broke back in June when an anonymous report, Queen's doubled down and said this is not an issue and did not take it seriously. I hope that they're they're changing their mind now, but yeah, this is a moment and a window to have this conversation, and it's very uncomfortable, uh, and people need to do it anyway.
0: And, and Kim, we're just getting a bunch of texts, people saying, well, why don't you just take a uh, and Me test or taking the a simple genealogy test. But I but you know and I understand what they're saying, well that would that would yeah. solve it. But I don't think it would because like no. we've discussed, I mean there are lots of people who can probably point out to having indigenous ancestry. I do, but yep. for for God's sake, I have no ke- connection to the community, no understanding of the issues mm-hmm. and I certainly can't speak to them.
1: Isn't that more important? No. Right. No, I wrote a book called Native American DNA that critiques the idea of genetic ancestry testing. I mean, there's an academic out east, Daryl LaRue, who writes on this, uh, a non-Indigenous person who's descended from all of those French people, right? Right. And there's a couple of Indigenous women in their ancestry 400 years ago. Me too. Just that Trudeau has the same ancestry. This is not being Indigenous, right? (laughs) So yeah, a DNA test is not going to help you out here.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to make a difference. It's a really interesting discussion. We'll follow up. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Talbot. I appreciate your time. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Um, That's uh, Dr. Kim Tolbert, who is an associate professor and faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta and the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples Technoscience and Environment,